Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Ontario's Premier shares his thoughts about bail reform. The province is failing to create change for those with accessibility issues. Hamilton councillors are being told to focus on certain priorities. Jump into Hamilton Winterfest. McMaster University welcomes the world and find out who could get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Bail reform is a hot topic in this province and in this country. Really bad people are getting arrested and, you know, shooting up the streets and the gun crimes. And all of a sudden, a day later, two days later, they're out on bail. And then they go recommit another crime. So we we need to put the bad folks away in, in jail and uh, not let him back on the streets so easily. Premier Doug Ford saying that his government is going to work on a solution for bail reform. It says, hey, ultimately, you know, an action plan has to come from the federal government. This is a federal uh, jurisdiction. The debate over bail reform really heated up around the Christmas time following the shooting death of OPP Constable Greg Pershala in Hagersville, uh, just after Christmas, in fact. Police groups uh, want stricter rules for violent repeat offenders But then there's groups like the Canadian Civil Liberties Association who says, listen, this would disproportionately affect people who are black, uh, indigenous, marginalized individuals, those with mental illness. There's no perfect system that can be in place. But what's going to happen going forward? Let's ask Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Colin, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, listening to the Premier's comments yesterday, it sounds like he, he wants to take a hard-line stance. He doesn't want violent criminals on our streets. But how much say does he really have? Well, unfortunately, I mean, he doesn't have that much say. And, and the Premier has kind of acknowledged that, right? Because uh, this is really governed by the Criminal Code of Canada, and that is really federal jurisdiction, which is why the Premier is really trying to put a little bit of that pressure on the federal government to say, well, you know, let's come up with a system where people who are charged with violent crimes using uh, weapons, as an example, you know, maybe they don't get bail as easily as somebody who's charged with a less violent crime. Uh, and, and the premier, you know, often kind of uses really colorful, um, you know, quite um engaging language to kind of make sure that he drives his point home, right? When he talks about people shooting up the streets and being able to get back out there and 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 offend once again. And to a degree, he is right. And he's kind of capitalizing on what you see happening in the city of Toronto as an example with an increased rise in crime. In some cases, it might be linked to mental health, uh, but also with the, you know, with the number of police officers who unfortunately have died in the line of duty, uh, mostly through gun crimes. I think that's one of the reasons why the premier is trying to capitalize on that and really trying to drive home this message that you know bail reform needs to happen sometime soon because the current system in his view isn't working there is a legislative committee in this province that's studying the issue apart from maybe some recommendations uh, is there anything else expected to come out of this committee no, that committee would largely come up with recommendations. And, and, and you know, this is one of those uh, committees that would really uh, hear from a lot of like-minded individuals, uh, you know, people like police associations, police chiefs, etc. There have been some who have warned the Justice Committee saying essentially, listen, you know, you every person who's charged with a crime is considered innocent until proven guilty under Canadian laws. And, and that the premier, the government has to remind itself of that. Because remember, uh, you know, the, the four government is not just in charge of advocating for bail reform, but they are also in charge of, you know, the Ontario 
Ontario Correctional uh, System, and they are uh, in charge of the Ministry of the Attorney General, as an example. And so they are, you know, kind of signaling some of the advocates for those who might be charged with a crime are, are signaling that they have a bit of discomfort with some of the language coming from the government because they say this could send a message uh, throughout the entire system that, you know, people who are charged with a crime should automatically be treated as guilty. And the premier always says that, you know, throw them in jail, uh, uh, you know, lock them up and throw away the key. Uh, but of course, everyone in this province and country has the right to due process and that due process, you know, involves having a bail hearing and it's up to a judge to decide whether or not they receive bail. The question I think for the premier is what is the criteria for that bail to actually be applied and who ultimately is in charge of that? He knows it's not him, which is why there might be more pressure being placed onto the federal government. So this justice committee might simply be, you know, collecting all of those voices to highlight them and push them over to the federal government to say, look, there is a collect uh, a collection of voices in Ontario who are calling for this. It's not just the premier. It might be the police chief, police associations, et cetera, who are calling for this. Now, Oh, I think we lost Colin DeMello. Well, Colin, if you can still hear me, we are out of time anyways. Yes, oh, there you are. Uh, we just lost you. I was just going to say we're plumb out of time, but I appreciate your time this morning. We'll continue to follow this story uh, and more. Thanks for the time today. Colin, Thanks for having me. Colin DeMello, Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global News, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. To honor the legacy of former Ontario Lieutenant Governor David Onley, advocates are urging the Ford government to not only review the Disabilities Act, but implement reform that Mr. Onley recommended years ago. David Lepofsky is the chair of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. David, good morning. How are you? I am good. How are you? I'm good. Um, you are asking the province to uh, affirm the Onley report and its findings and maybe more importantly, act on his recommendations to improve the lives of more than two million people in this province who have disabilities. What have you heard back from the province at this point? Absolutely nothing. Um, with all of the attention and public outpouring about the death of uh, our former Lieutenant Governor and my friend, David Onley, uh, and the important contributions he made in his career uh, and his life advocating for dis uh, people with disabilities and for accessibility for them, the government has been absolutely silent. They have not announced a single thing to uh, actually act on his recommendations. They got, let, let me just explain to everyone. There is a law on the books called the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act. It requires the province, uh, provincial government to lead Ontario to become accessible to people with disabilities. People with all disabilities, people using wheelchairs like David, people who are blind like me, people with autism, people with the full spectrum of disabilities. And it requires that that be achieved by 2025. The law was passed in 2005. Now, this law didn't just come out of the air. We fought for it. I had the privilege of leading the 10-year campaign to get it passed. And one of the things that law says is that every three or four years, the government has to appoint an independent person to take our collective temperature, tell us how we're doing, and recommend reforms. Well, the government appointed David Onley to do the third of those reviews. He rendered his report after consulting the public, including people with disabilities all around Ontario, 
And he rendered his report, delivered his report to the government four years ago this past Tuesday. The day after his funeral was the fourth anniversary of the delivery of his report. And the government still has not implemented his major roadmap for how to make things better. He said, we're way behind. He said, we still have a province full of barriers impeding people with disabilities. He called those barriers soul crushing and he called for reform, but the government has still done nothing to implement his actual recommendations. So the question is, what's the holdup? I'm the wrong guy to ask, unfortunately. The guy (laughs) you need to ask is the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford. Now, I'd love to ask him that, but on behalf of my coalition, uh, I've asked for meeting after meeting with him. He won't uh, agree to meet. I've I've been asking for meetings with his Minister for Accessibility, Raymond Cho, for the past over a year and a half. He won't agree to meet. He used to meet with me. No, he won't. I've written his chief of staff. He won't even answer my emails. The, the, I mean, this is not how you honor the legacy of of, of David Onley. David Lepofsky is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dave is the chair of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance. And four years ago, earlier this week, uh, former Ontario Lieutenant Governor David Onley's report urging the government to act on some much-needed change, um, there, there's, there remains inaction from the provincial government. What, what does Mr. Onley's roadmap for reform look like? Give us uh, some insight on, on what we could potentially experience Who knows? Maybe sometime soon. Okay, well, here's an example. We have a government that is uh, every year spending hundreds of millions, billions on new infrastructure, new hospitals, new public transit, all that sort of thing. We should make sure, David Onley wrote, that none of that money is ever used to create new barriers. We've been asking the province this for years. Answer, radio silence. You can see, you know, follow follow uh, the premier and his members of, uh, of the legislature on Twitter. They're always announcing a new hospital, a new public transit system, a new school, a new college, a new building. And they're all ready to pose and smile in front of them without ever ensuring that what's inside is actually built to be accessible. The government three summers ago announced a half a billion dollars for new schools and major school additions. We've been pressing for them to ensure they will be accessible. Radio silence. That's just one example. I'll give you one more. He emphasized the importance of making sure uh, our education system is accessible to uh, kids with disabilities. We have a third of a million of our students in our Ontario-funded schools have disabilities. They face barrier after barrier. He pressed for the government to move forward on this. Well, to the credit of the Ford government, They did unfreeze the advisory committee that was appointed to make recommendations. They did do that one thing uh, uh, four years ago. But now that that committee's rendered its report, I sat on it, uh, over a year ago, the government has yet again done nothing with its recommendations. So uh, the, the, the actual measures we need to move us forward He gave specific concrete suggestions. He said, the last thing I'll tell you, Rick, he said, if you want to get to be accessible by 2025, you got to have a plan. We need a government plan that says step by step what we're going to do to get to that goal. And 
we still don't have that plan either. Last one for you. We've only got about a minute. There's an ongoing discussion in Hamilton. I'm sure it's being had in other communities about offering free public transit, including for those with accessibility issues. Should we be going down this path? Well, there are two separate issues. One is, uh, what do you do with the um, hundreds of thousands of people with disabilities in this country who live in poverty? And what measures do you take to alleviate that poverty? And they, that kind of measure is, and, and David was obviously very concerned about that, and, and he talked about it. So that that is, uh, the measure you're talking about is addressing that front. And they're not separate silos. But the other thing is, if you're going to give them free access, how about giving them free access to a system that is actually one they can use uh, uh, on a footing of equality? That would make a lot of sense. David, thank you for your time today, and uh, we appreciate you continuing to uh, fight for those who uh, have accessibility issues. Thanks so much for having me on your show. That is David Lepofsky, the chair of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. What should the priorities be at Hamilton City Hall? Well, there's a group called the Just Recovery Coalition that is calling on Hamilton Council to create some bold change. Carl Andrus is the Community Benefits Manager with the Hamilton Community Benefits Network and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Carl, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I, I'm I'm actually quite quite good. Excellent. You uh, have some recommendations for uh, City Council. What's on the slate? So um, our our coalition came together, um, as your listeners may recall, a couple of years ago at the beginning of the pandemic to put forward a policy paper with 153 recommendations for the old uh, City Council to explore a more just recovery for Hamilton. And we continued that work uh, throughout the pandemic, and we decided it was very timely because um, change was kind of in the air at City Hall um, to release a new paper with 123 additional recommendations on what the city can do better in terms of prioritizing its spending on our most vulnerable residents, especially in terms of uh, the housing and homelessness crisis that I'm sure your listeners know is, is of, of keen interest to everyone in the city. So we're into the triple digits of recommendations. Are most of them easily achievable? Uh, it's a mix, to be honest with you. Some of them are policy recommendations recommendations to change the way things are done. Others are going to require investment from other levels of government, especially around, of course, building affordable housing, which is something Hamilton can't do by itself. But a good deal of them just have to do with the way that that our city council approaches things and getting them to look at things outside of silos and intersecting to say that, um, you know, what's, what's important to someone in a wheelchair is just as important to a woman looking for work, that investing in our green economy is just as important as as it is for inclusive city building. So really these recommendations were just a, a, a roadmap, we hope, for the new city council of a better way to do things. We were really excited by that historic election, like many Hamiltonians, that saw a great uh, turnover in, in our elected leaders, and a lot of them came in with, with promises of, of change, and we we're really hoping to capitalize on that with these new recommendations. How were these recommendations formulated, and how much input did uh, the, the general public have in formulating them? So these recommendations come together from the Just Recovery Coalition. So that's to say the 13 or 14 not-for-profits that make up our coalition. So they come from uh, YMCA Hamilton, the United Way of Hamilton Halton, SPRC, ACORN, Disability Justice, and various groups like that. And we all got together and we talked about various ways that our differing works from each of these not-for-profits uh, intersect. It's not meant to be like a, a you know, 
do all 123 of these recommendations or the 153 from the previous report two years ago, and problems are solved in the city of Hamilton. These are our observations as a lot of groups working on the front line and tackling a lot of these systemic issues that deal with that the city of Hamilton is facing. So it's not meant to be a catch-all of, of all of the, uh, the, the problems that exist in the city of Hamilton, but more of a roadmap for doing things better. We have another minute with Carl Andrus, Community Benefits Manager with the Hamilton Community Benefits Network is part of the Just Recovery Coalition. They have a number of recommendations, more than 100, as you heard, on how City Council can move the ball forward. we got about a minute. Uh, investing in women is also one of the key planks of these recommendations. Why is that being highlighted? Well, um, women were, were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic in terms of job loss, in terms of, of assault, in terms of, of dealing with difficult home situations and, and domestic partner violence. So they were really a group that disproportionately bore the effects of the pandemic, and they haven't bounced back. Those 5C caring jobs have not fully recovered. They're traditionally underpaid. Um, so it is an area, especially with uh, child care concerns, where um, as we come out of the, the COVID-19 pandemic and recover from it, there has been a, a the, the women's related industries have not bounced back as quickly and they they continue to have a disproportionate amount of of the suffering of of the pandemic so we really felt it was important to highlight uh the 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 causes of women and also some of the 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 highlights that are coming like ten dollar a day child care that's going to have a massive impact on 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 how um women are able to work in our society provided the city of hamilton rolls them in uh, manages the rollout properly. Carl, thank you for your time today. Good luck in presenting this to City Council. I appreciate it and have a wonderful day. That is Carl Andrus from the Hamilton Community Benefits Network. This um, 123 recommendations, this uh, document will be presented to City Council as budget deliberations continue uh, next week, February 6th and the 7th. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Winterfest is here. Yes, the start of Winterfest is here. Jeremy Freiberger is the founder and cultural strategist with Cobalt Connects putting on Hamilton Winterfest once again. Jeremy, good morning. How are you? Good morning, sir. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Are there any pre-Winterfest jitters? Uh, no, there's no time for jitters at this point <laughs> <laughs> for a festival producing team. We are, uh, we've are we been going pretty full tilt for the last number of months, and we're down to the short strokes. So it's, uh, it's actually a fun time because we start to see all of the ideas that people have been playing with coming to reality. So it's a, actually a nice time to be a producer. This is a large event. It is, yeah. Winterfest has grown. It's a co-production between my organization and the city of Hamilton, and it's been going since the mid-70s. Um, and it's a weird festival. I'm actually writing an article about it right now and that most people think of festivals as one place. You go to James Street for Supercrawl. You go to Gage Park for It's Your Festival. But uh, Winterfest is across the city. So there's about 60 events that are everywhere from Dundas to Stony Creek to the mountain to the water. And uh, those are produced by all sorts of different organizations across the city. And our job is to help elevate those and, and market those really well and then put on a central piece called the Winterfest Hub. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a big event. We'll probably have you know fifty thousand or plus people participate in Winterfest this year and uh, get them out doing something fun in their city in February. So. Is there is there any guesstimate on the economic spinoff or the economic um, impact that, that this event does? It's there. You know, there are different models for for looking at at economic impact. We we look at um, sort of at least the last number of years. We've been working with the city for five years now on Winterfest and. 
we've grown the festival from a $40,000 budget, which is what the city puts into the festival, to just shy of $800,000 this year. So we've done our work to draw in sponsors and other funders and whatnot. And then that all gets, you know, that gets cycled back into the community. We, We must have a dozen different shops in Hamilton right now building something for Winterfest. So that festival is now creating jobs in other sectors um, and tying in lots of great people to the festival. That's amazing. I received earlier on this week the Winterfest program in the mail. Oh, the it, magazine. Yeah. It, it is awesome. And it profiles Thank everything you. from, you know, the, the comedy shows to the concerts to the great local restaurants. It is a one-stop shopping in terms of planning out your Winterfest experience. And that was our hope with it. Like a big part of what we, uh, Cobalt's job is, is to market all of the events in Winterfest, not just the ones we produce. And um, as we, as our marketing budget was growing and we were tasked with trying to draw in more like day tourists from Mississauga and Brentford and Niagara, um, the magazine became a really important piece to us. And I'm thrilled with the work that uh, Unicorn Rebellion has done on the design but it's, I mean, their design is great, but it's because we've got great content to play with. And so we distribute 50,000 of those throughout the region um, through Canada Post to people's homes so that they've got that, that guide that gives them everything. And then we've got a digital version online that if you're not one of those lucky people that got the print version, you can go online and see all the same content. But there's also little Easter eggs in there. There's videos that you can play, music you can listen to that's all tied to the festival. So the digital version's got some little perks as well. Nice. Jeremy Freiberger is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, the founder and cultural strategist with Cobalt Connects putting on Hamilton Winterfest. And you can get all the details online at hamiltonwinterfest.ca. There are two signature days within Winterfest that you really take advantage of, uh, Family Day and Valentine's Day. Talk about the programming surrounding those two events. Yeah, for sure. Valentine's Day is a fun one. The Winterfest Hub is like a centralized site that we produce that's got uh, an an outdoor skating rink. It's got 20 different art installations, uh, live music, all sorts of things involved. But uh, Valentine's Day lands right in the middle of that. The hub runs from the 10th to the 20th. So we partnered up with a company out of Burlington called Neontology. And we thought, how do we get hundreds of people to celebrate Valentine's Day on the roof of Jackson Square, <laughs> which is where the hub is. And uh, so it's uh, the the perk piece is sold out, but everyone is welcome. Um, we'll have live music. We've got a photographer there taking professional photos of you and whoever you bring on Valentine's Day. And the first 300 people that signed up uh, get a free little neon sign heart to bring home and some chocolates from Laura Secord Chocolates, which is in Jackson Square. Um, so we're thrilled that we know we've got at least 350 people coming to the roof for their Valentine's Day and everyone else is welcome to join in the fun. Um, and then uh, Family Day is the last day of the festival and uh, the Insight Foundation really stepped up to sponsor Family Day this year. And we partnered with the Art Gallery of Hamilton and the Hamilton Public Library, which are both kind of connected to Jackson Square. And um, we have everything from pajama party movies to blacklight bubble dances to walking story tours. There's a kid's guide that every kid will get when they show up on site that walks them through all of the different activities they can do. There's live music, there's stories, there's all sorts of stuff. So we've really said, let's make family day a huge part of this festival. And there are family day celebrations in other parts of the city at the same time. So there's a family day celebration in Dundas. I believe it's one of the mountain as well. So Winterfest has really said, let's make Family Day our thing. And um, the programming on offer is really fantastic. Looking at the 60 plus events that are listed in the magazine and online, many of them uh, beside them say free, 
Free, free, free. So good on uh, everyone involved with Winterfest to offer some free programming because there's going to be a lot of people, as we know, take advantage of it. Jeremy, we'll have to leave it there as we're out of time, but I appreciate your time today. Good luck with Hamilton Winterfest. Thank you so much, sir. We're going to have a great time. Absolutely. Jeremy Freiberger, the founder and cultural strategist with Cobalt Connects, which puts on Hamilton Winterfest with the city of Hamilton online, hamiltonwinterfest.ca. And if you are one of the lucky ones that did get the magazine, it's outstanding. Great layout. Everything is there. And of course, the website is easy to use, especially when you're on site. You don't have to carry a magazine around. Just grab your cell phone and away you go. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's a pretty neat event going down at McMaster University today and tomorrow. And I was actually a part of this. Geez, I want to say maybe 10 years ago. It's called the World Congress, the McMaster World Congress. And this year, they're celebrating their 44th anniversary. Basically, what this is, it's a student-run business conference. It's actually Canada's oldest student-run business conference. And this year's theme... Uh, well, it really goes hand in hand with what students are really into these days, what people in general are really into these days. With more details, let's welcome in our next guest from the McMaster World Congress. They're the co-chairs, Julian Lombardi and Iman Butso. Iman, Julian, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. Hey, how's it going? Uh, great. Fantastic. Uh, we'll start with Julian. Uh, this year's theme is smart technology, which kind of goes hand in hand with the way of the world. What can participants expect to hear? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we've got a whole whole bunch of different uh, sort of umbrellas that that stem from smart technology. So we're going to cover four main topics, uh, and that's technology and engineering, technology and business, health tech, and technology and sustainability. Uh, Iman, all huge topics uh, going forward, not only in our society, but from a business perspective as well. And from a career perspective, what kind of uh, input do you suspect that people who are participating in this event will get out of it? Yeah, for sure. So it's honestly a phenomenal experience for all attendees coming. Um, smart technology, it's such a relevant topic to today's industry and today's world. And I hope people come away with valuable information and valuable connections from this event. Julian, what's what is it like putting together this conference? Because these are you and other students kind of, um, you know, scheduling speakers, trying to get these speakers to come to the event. What's the experience been like? Yeah, so it's been a very long experience, uh, but I, I do think it's going to be worth it after after today and tomorrow. But uh, we essentially started this about a year ago now, and uh, you know, it's been a lot of a lot of cold emails, a lot of no's, <laughs> um, a lot of shutdowns, but uh, and of course a lot of obstacles in our ways. But we, you know, we've managed to sort of hurdle everything, and uh, we're here today. We're ready to go. So. Iman, after all those no's, you got a lot of yeses. Are you looking to forward to someone in particular who's going to be speaking at the event? Honestly, we have an amazing, amazing roster this year. I think a lot of attendees are so excited for Microsoft, Meta, IBM, a lot of huge names that McMaster, you know, hasn't seen at its campus before. So we're so excited to bring these industry professionals to our attendees today. Julian, same for you. Do you have one on the list that you're thinking, wow, this person's really going to hit it out of the park? Um, you know, we, we've 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 sat down with a lot of the speakers and uh, we've gone over some few things. And I, honestly, I, I do agree with them on that. They're all going to be great. In particular, maybe I'm looking for uh, for nine a, sorry ten a.m. tomorrow. Metaverse group. Um, he's gonna he's gonna knock it out of the out of the ballpark. His name's Lauren, so it'll be a great great time tomorrow. 
We're chatting with Yvonne Butto and Julian Lombardi, co-chairs of the McMaster World Congress. It kicks off today and continues tomorrow at CIBC Hall in the Student Center at McMaster University. And this year's theme is smart technology. Uh, has this experience maybe pushed you, and Aman, we'll start with you, pushed you towards uh, being an event coordinator? Has it really you know, tickled your fancy or have you uh, grown some scar tissue and thinking, whoa, I don't, I don't want to do this again? <laughs> honestly, it's just been an amazing experience. As Julian mentioned, there was definitely a lot of obstacles, but it was honestly like the most fulfilling, most accelerating project I've had the pleasure of taking on in my undergraduate career. And, you know, I've even been considering, hey, I might go into strategy and logistics coordination now, you know, might got to change career paths. Yeah. Julian, how does this open doors for you going forward? Yeah, I, I, I agree with Iman totally. Um, it's been like, it's it's really been awesome. So uh, definitely, it's been exciting throughout the entire entire time. Um, you know, our, our faculty advisor, Dr. Nick Bontis, has definitely uh, opened our eyes to a lot of things. So I agree with him on in that, you know, the strategy and logistics area is, is now definitely on my plate. Absolutely. Well, we uh, wish you nothing but the best and congratulations on putting this uh, World Congress together. It sounds like it's going to be uh, a pretty great show. Iman, Julian, thanks for joining us today and good luck going forward. Thank you so Thank much. You. Uh, to the young minds in our community, Iman Buto and Julian Lombardi, co-chairs of the McMaster World Congress, and they've put together, helped put together this uh, World Congress this year that's focusing on smart technology. And yeah, you can imagine, you know, students having to call up places like IBM, Microsoft, Meta. I'm sure they've they've reached out to the Apples of the world and the Googles of the world or Alphabet uh, and saying, hey, you know, do you have any speakers that uh, can come speak at our conference? And as you heard, a lot of them said no, but some of them and some pretty cool ones said, yeah, so that should be a lot of fun. Worldcongress.mcmaster.ca is the website to go to if you're interested in participating in the event as an attendee, obviously not as a speaker. That list has been full, but you do have to register. Uh, it is free. You don't have to pay any money to go hear uh, the experiences and the life stories of these individuals. And from my experience, and again, this I think was 10 or 12 years ago, that Dr. Nick Montes invited me to go speak out. And it was just about my career and how uh, I was here, there, and everywhere and the, and the things that I learned along the way. It was a neat, as a, as a speaker, it was a neat experience to be involved with to get that feedback from the people in the crowd. It was really cool. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. U.S. class of nominees for the Rock and Roll Hall Hall of Fame have been announced. They include uh, Missy Elliott, Iron Maiden, George Michael, Willie Nelson. The list goes on and on. Eric Alper is a publicist and music commentator who, who knows, maybe one day could be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame himself. Eric, good morning. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. And just so you know, I was an M in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, I was there twice, which allows me to say I've been in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> Does visiting help? No, absolutely. That counts. Yeah, the, okay. the, the one name that jumped out to me and I thought, geez, I thought he was a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer already. And that was Willie Nelson. Yeah, Willie Nelson, I think, gets the nomination and likely induction this year, thanks to what happened last year when Dolly Parton was nominated and inducted. You know, Willie Nelson isn't really rock and roll per se, but certainly when he first started in the 1950s, um, he was as close to rock and roll as anybody else because of the merger of 
country music and R&B and country and roots music um, to help create rock and roll in the first place. So um, I, I think the fact that Dolly got in um, opened up the door really wide for Willie Nelson to get in. And he's the oldest nominee this year at 89, huh. um, which might make him a shoe in even more so that the um, so that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame kind of gets him in before it's too late to properly do so. Kate Bush is also a nominee. Would she be considered if it were not for Stranger Things breathing new life into her hit song, Running Up That Hill? I love Kate Bush, and I know that you do too. I know that we're all part of the same era where Kate Bush in the 1980s was as weird and wonderful as anybody else out there creating pretty vital music. Um, but certainly um, Running Up That Hill being revived through Stranger Things 4, um, climbing back onto the top 100 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Um, I, I, it's fair to call her a front runner because of stuff like that, because it shows just how powerful um, her songs really are. The fact that they can still stick in people's minds and um, and connect with the younger generation 35 years after that hit. Um, but it's not just about that hit, too. She's had a lot of really classic albums that got a little bit revived as well. So um, I'm not so sure that she would be on the ballot if it wasn't for Stranger Things, but I think because she is this year, uh, it kind of makes her a, a pretty good bet to, to put her in again. Eric Alper is a publicist and music commentator and is with us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML as we talk about the 2023 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominees, two other stars of the 80s and uh, and 90s to a certain extent, at least for one of them, uh, Cindy Lauper and George Michael. They On the surface, they appear to be shoe-ins. Yeah, um, they they are actually at the top of my list uh, for artists that are almost guaranteed. You know, Cindy Lauper has had so many classic songs like "Girls Just Want to Have Fun" and "Time After Time." That album, she's so unusual that she did back in 1983, um, is still pretty influential. Um, and and you know when you when you combine that with the Broadway hit "Kinky Boots," it still shows that she's relevant. Without Cindy Lauper, you may not have Nicki Minaj or Lady Gaga or Pink or Alanis Morris set with George Michael um he is he's my odds on bet to get in um he was just as much of a musical genius as Prince was he recorded his own music he wrote everything he produced everything he was a brilliant performer um and he led the way to LGBTQIA plus um artists that are that are today like Lady Gaga and Sam Smith um and others as well and look Faith and Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1, his two uh, first kind of solo albums are still so immensely wonderful to listen to now. So I think both Cindy and and George Michael gets in. There's others on the list. Uh, Missy Elliott, as I mentioned earlier, Iron Maiden, Sheryl Crow, Soundgarden, The White Stripes. Uh, What's the max that can get in? Usually they have anywhere between five and seven. It's, it's, It's wild because I can probably make a case for for all of them, I think the ones that may have to wait another year or two uh, will probably be the spinners, and that's no knock against them. It's just that nothing's really going on to make them being inducted this year, as opposed to um, maybe you know in the future. Um, New Order and Joy Division—they're kind of going in together because New Order was born out of the ashes of Joy Division. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has never really kind of treated the UK music scene, at least in the '80s and '90s, with the due respect. So they might have to wait a little bit. Iron Maiden 
you know, the, the Hall of Fame doesn't have a lot of metalheads on that list. But, you know, when it comes to fan choice, they're going to be, I think, one of the leaders in there. Um, and Missy Elliott, um, I mean, there was nobody that really came before her uh, and certainly nobody afterwards. You just don't have hip hop and rap music in the way that you do with Beyonce and Eminem and Lizzo without somebody like Missy Elliott coming onto the scene. So, um, you know, if it was up to me, I would let them all in. I, I don't <laughs> like it when artists are kind of competing against one another when it comes to lifetime achievement awards um but i think you know i think the white stripes are going to be in for sure too i mean there's nobody else that has been a champion for rock and roll as much as jack white for the white stripes maybe dave Grohl of the foo fighters and nirvana um but still pretty vital there too i think many on this list will eventually get in the inductees are going to be announced in may the induction ceremony will take place sometime this fall eric always appreciate your time thanks for joining us today Thank you so much. And you will be first on my list when I do get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. (laughs) Maybe when I visit this year. Love it. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Rick. Eric Albert is a publicist and music commentator and obviously a huge fan of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.